Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to work our way around the body head to toe, exploring different body parts and organs and their history in a cultural, medical, social sense. We're going to hear from a historian or curator about their work studying these body parts and their history. And we'll finish up each episode by exploring some of the recipes that were developed in history to treat that part of the body. So welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's podcast, Case Notes Head to Toe, as we move around the body. My name is Daisy Cunningham and I am the college's heritage manager and a librarian. And my name is Olivia Howarth and I'm a volunteer with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Heritage. And today we have made it as far as the anus. So almost everything that I have read for this episode is to do with laxatives. I don't know why I got so enthusiastic, but I figured I'll leave that till the end. Okay. (laughs) So one interesting aspect for me was looking at the subject of hemorrhoids. Now, again, one of the recurring features of this series is humoral theory. And that's a huge part of the history of how people understood hemorrhoids. It was an accumulation or a stagnation of the humours. Blood, but also phlegm and black bile is what supposedly caused hemorrhoids. But what I find kind of fascinating is there's some things that you think, surely people couldn't have viewed this as a good thing. And yet... A lot of people were very pro-hemorrhoids. They were known as the golden veins. And for quite a long time, and in some texts right up to the 1800s, there was an idea that hemorrhoids were, for men, the equivalent of menstruation for women. So they were a natural way that an excess of humoral blood was just removed from the body. And you didn't want to get rid of your hemorrhoids because then that extra humours, that extra blood would go somewhere else and do something else damaging to your body. So you wanted your hemorrhoids. I did read that one professor of medicine called them the cause of long life. Lovely, isn't it? (laughs) So yes, an excess of of humours is supposedly one cause, but there's so many other different theories about hemorrhoids. I assume that in a period of horse riding, carriage riding, lots of cobbled streets, hemorrhoids were more of a concern. And when you had them, even more pain-inducing than they would be in the 21st century. So there's a lot of writing about hemorrhoids. So they are caused by gender. They are viewed as more common amongst men than amongst women. Age, climate, Being overweight, idleness, masturbation is one theory. Sex as well, just intercourse is also a theory. Wearing too tight clothes. One book said spanking and cleaning the area with newspaper. Yes, I had read that spanking was also considered a treatment. There's not always consistency in these Mm. theories. It is not entirely uncommon. And obviously this is a, a you know condition that has a long history, you know, right back to Hippocrates, they talked about how you treated hemorrhoids. He recommended 
cauterization with a hot iron. But there are many, many different treatments uh, sort of written about. One was using the back of a toad. The idea was the back of a toad looks like hemorrhoids. And so somehow the fact that it looks like a hemorrhoid means that it will be an effective treatment for hemorrhoids. It could also prevent you ever getting hemorrhoids in the first place if you dried the toad and wore it around your neck or placed it in your armpit. Don't ask questions. I mean, you're welcome to ask questions, but I don't have any answers. I got quite interested in the history of toilet paper. And admittedly, I was looking at this online rather than reading any serious academic research. But I found that there was not a lot of facts and there was a lot of rumours and myths surrounding this. So one of them was because Romans used a sponge on a stick to kind of wipe themselves. That is the origin of the phrase to get hold of the wrong end of the stick. I am unconvinced by that. It feels like something that someone has put together after the fact, but I don't know. The other one, which sounds more plausible, but again, don't take this as, as a fact, is that because people used to wipe themselves with old newspaper or, or scrap paper, that was called bum fodder, which is where bump comes from. You're nodding your head. Do you have evidence that that is genuinely true as opposed to apocryphal? Only anecdotal evidence of grandparents having said that to me many times. (laughs) It's a subject that seems to lend itself to an awful lot of vague theories about Uh things. What else have you found, Olivia? There is an ancient Egyptian papyrus called the Chester Beatty Medical Papyrus, and it's entirely dedicated to magical incantations against headaches and remedies for anorectal ailments. I cannot find anything more about the content of this papyrus, but it makes me feel very happy that there was an existing one entirely to do with uh, probably hemorrhoids. I have been to the Chester Beatty Library, which is in Dublin. So it's not just a research library, it's a, a museum, essentially, of manuscripts. And it's primarily religious-related manuscripts. I always find in these sorts of things that the more mundane stuff is the most fascinating. So the things within that that are essentially shopping list it's those little glimpses into how people live their everyday lives. It's a very fascinating museum. We're in Edinburgh and Edinburgh is called Old Reiki. I never understood why until I looked into it. So there's two parts of why it's called Old Reiki. Part of it is due to when it was a very overcrowded old town and there were lots of coal fires. So way too much noxious smog around, but also because Princess Street Gardens used to be a lock and that was both the water source for the old town and the drainage site for waste. So it uh, got a bit stinky. I think having a sort of pretty sizable lock in the middle of your city and everyone just throwing their rubbish into it feels so unpleasant. You know, it's not like having a corner or or a, or a yard or whatever. It's huge space to have literally just be a stinking mass of sewage and rubbish. But then equally, I found an article that was talking about Samuel Pepys's diary. And in his day in London, they just had cesspits in their cellars, which were brick lined so that the brick would be porous enough for any liquid to just seep out into the surrounding soil. There's an entry from October 1660. (laughs) 
He says, going down my cellar to look, I put my foot into a great heap of turds by which I find that Mr. Turner's house of office, which is another phrase for cesspit, is full and comes into my cellar, which doth trouble me. It would doth trouble you. It would (laughs) doth trouble me. (laughs) Yes. So they would have these cesspits in their basements and then they would have nightmen or night soil men to come and empty them. In Tudor England, the name for the person who would come and remove waste from privies and cesspits was a gong farmer. Gong farmers were only allowed to work at night, which is maybe where the phrase night soilman comes from. And anything they collected had to be taken outside the city or town boundaries. I'm not against that rule. So I have a theory that all patent medicines in the 1700s and 1800s had either laxatives or opium or booze or a combination of the three basically to relax you and stop you from feeling whatever awful thing was happening or to just somehow poo it out these are the options that were available (laughs) to you that may be a slight overstatement but it's not far off and there's just this real focus on making you regular in your movements so you wouldn't have to be constipated to take a laxative So they almost wanted it to be a laxative because you knew something was happening. If they sold you a medicine that you didn't really feel anything from, whether it was effective or not, you'd sort of go, well, what's the point in this? Whereas if you took something and it had a laxative effect, you thought, well, this is doing something to me and it's probably good. So there's an overuse of laxatives way beyond what would actually be needed. It's remarkable to me how many products that we now think of as very normal were originally marketed in this way. So most types of cereal that have been around for more than, say, 50 years began as the sort of, this will cleanse your bowels. A lot of types of biscuit, I'd suggest the name digestive would be an example. (laughs) Um, Dr. Pepper, you know, a lot of drinks started out with this sort of medicinal idea that they would make you regular. I mean, certainly the use of doctor in the name was very, you know, (laughs) very pointed. So it was something that you wanted. You wanted to give to your children. You know, you wanted to be taking, regardless of what was actually wrong with you. Oh, Marmite was one. Um, and really kind of yeast products in general, uh, yogurt and other other sort of equipment and things like that as well. There were electrical bowel stimulators, oh, and rectal elect- dilators. Electricity again. And of course, the range of things that laxatives were marketed for, you know, you'd think it would be constipation. Yes, that was one of them. But it's also, epilepsy, headaches, syphilis, asthma. There's something, and again, all tying back to earlier ideas around humoral theory, that somehow it would cure diseases by also sort of just giving your body a shock, shocking your body back into wellness. (laughs) Do you want some facts about flatulence? Give me some facts about flatulence, yeah. The world's oldest recorded joke is said to be an ancient Sumerian proverb from 1900 BCE. It's not exactly funny, and it's something which has never occurred since time immemorial. A young woman did not fart in her husband's lap. And it's sort of a warning for (laughs) young husbands. Women will fart now that you are married. They will fart in your presence. It's not the only ancient text to reference farting. The playwright Aristophanes makes one of his characters say, my wind exploded like a thunderclap. And equally, in the Canterbury Tales, Chaucer describes 
how Nicholas, one of the main characters in the Miller's Tale, lets fly a fart as loud as it had been a thunderclap straight into someone's face. A fart sounding like thunder is a common theme. And in the sort of late and early 20th century, farting became a form of entertainment. There's a professional French farter called a a flatulist called Joseph Pujol, and he was known as Le Petaman, which translates to the fart maniac. And he entertained audiences at the Moulin Rouge by imitating cannon fire and thunderstorms and blowing out candles and playing songs... (laughs) including the Marseillais, on a rubber tube inserted into his anus. It wasn't natural farting that he was doing. He could inhale air into his rectum and control the release of that air. Apparently performed for some famous people, including Sigmund Freud as well. It makes sense because not only has farting clearly always been funny, it's also a universal language. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's like the Mr. Bean of its day. You know, it's something which, regardless of your language or your culture, you can get. Mm-hmm. In our case study today, we're going to look at the history of enemas. Enemas have been a treatment for constipation, but also a general attempt to clean or clear out the system. Enemas could contain honey or vinegar or lime water to remove intestinal worms, opium for pain relief, or mercury to treat syphilis. From the 1600s right up to the end of the 1800s, it was quite common among the well-off to undergo preventative enemas. So when a person had no medical complaints, they would undergo regular enemas. There were various theories that it would improve the complexion and promote good health. This idea did not disappear, but rather it morphed into the very similar colonic irrigation. People increasingly self-administered their enemas, and in the Victorian era, specialist tools were developed to enable people to apply them themselves in the comfort of their own homes. Enthusiasts included Dr. Kellogg of serial fame. His health resort, Battle Creek Sanitarium, was a sort of combined hotel and medical centre, Kellogg recommended colonic irrigation through his books, lectures, and articles, saying that, quote, more people need washing out than any other remedy. In the 1700s, various societies for the revival of the partially drowned were set up in Europe, in Paris, Venice, Vienna, London, Newcastle, and elsewhere. The Newcastle Society established houses for drowning cases near the River Tyne, in Newcastle, North Shields, South Shields, Howden Dock and Leamington, with instruments and medicines placed in each. The equipment primarily consisted of various pipes and tubes and a set of bellows with which breathing could be reintroduced by the inflation of the lungs and then spirits, oil of peppermint or other liquids could be inserted. But more alarmingly and more relevant to the subject at hand, The resuscitation techniques included the insertion of tobacco smoke into the rectum. This technique might suggest a bit of confusion about how to inflate the lungs, but it also indicates an understandable concern about contagion and the risk of disease transmission from the use of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. In this short excerpt, Professor Erica Johnson discusses historical medical treatments for prostate complaints in the 1800s. 
a lot of these uh, techniques were not particularly successful, often quite painful. And because much of it was being done before antibiotics had a very large uh, mortality rate. So prostate surgery back at the end of the 1800s probably had a, a mortality rate of about 40%. And even those who survived were not necessarily successfully treated. Uh, one of the other options at the time was catheterization, which of course is an option today too, but catheter technologies were much more primitive at the time. They were very painful to use and also very hard to keep clean. So most catheter patients would embark on what was called the catheter life with trepidation. And there was like an 8% death rate after just a month of that as well, because um, urinary tract infections were quite common and they could lead to death. Um, because of this, men who were suspected to have prostate problems were um, willing to try all sorts of different options. And one of the ideas that was being presented in the late 1880s was to castrate men and see if that would affect their prostate problems, particularly in enlarged prostates. Now, the reason, there are a couple of reasons why this was suggested. One was that they had noticed that um, uh, enochs did not generally tend to develop prostate problems late in life. Uh, the castropti that were singing in operas, for example, almost never had that. Problem. It also, dogs who had been castrated generally tended not to have prostate issues. And dogs are one of those species that can develop prostate problems late in, in life. But the main reason that this option was presented by the medical community in the late 1800s was because at the same time, there was an already established way of dealing with a benign tumor growth in the uterus for women, and that was to remove the ovaries. This was considered a good way of um, curing problems with the uterus. And there was a theory that the prostate was kind of homologous to the uh, uterus. So if it worked to remove the ovaries in the female body, then it might also work to remove the testicles in the male body. This was the theory, and it was tried out. There were quite a few men who didn't really think this option was a good option, but there were quite a few men who agreed to have it done. And what they found was that it wasn't particularly successful in terms of reducing prostate growth. And many of the men who had had this procedure done reported severe or moderate problems with their psyche afterwards, with their mood swings, with depression or melancholia. So it was called um, and so because the treatment started to impact the psyche of the men, the doctors agreed in the letters back and forth that has been analyzed for this part of the study that uh, nope, uh, removing the testicles to cure the prostate was not a good solution and they stopped doing it. Welcome to Recipes of Yore. We're going to explore some unusual medical recipes from the past. The way in which the word recipes was used in the past is a bit different from how it's used today. So it could mean recipes for cooking, for medicine, or even recipes for cleaning products or cosmetics. Very few of them were treatments we would recognise in the 21st century, and certainly none of these should be tried at home. 
just how much hemorrhoids or emeralds were an issue for people in the 1600s and 1700s is fairly clear from the sheer volume of treatments in both handwritten and printed recipe books. One recipe from the 1785 text Taylor's Ready Doctor states, quote, To drink the decoction of onions for this disorder is good, but if bloody, linseed and plantain leaf must be applied. Meanwhile, drink inwardly the juice of maiden's hair, about two noggins or gills at once, once a day, till cured. A noggin and a gill are about a quarter of a pint, and maiden's hair, if you were wondering, is not an actual woman's hair, it is a type of fern. Another recipe from the same text contains the aptly named pilewort plant. Um, this is a herb that was used to treat hemorrhoids since about the 1400s along with salted butter and oil of turpentine, to be applied rather than ingested. A recipe from an earlier book, dating from 1731, recommends the juices of nettles, along with the hairs of a hare, burnt, spider's webs, the white of an egg, leeks, milk, sugar, figs, onions, wine and lead. Another cure for piles from the same 1731 text recommends, quote, Frankincense small, beaten, sheep's dung of each a pretty quantity. Throw it upon a chaffing dish of coals, and let the patient take the fume thereof in a close stool, or take crumbs of bread and of barley, and wet them in women's or goat's milk, adding the yolk of an egg and saffron. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at RCPE Heritage, and we have a Just Giving page, RCPE Heritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.